Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, the tennis podcast by fans. On today's Passing Shot Meets, we chat with writer Stephen Blush about his new book, Bustin' Balls, World Team Tennis 74 to 78, Pro Sports, Pop Culture and Progressive Politics. Kim, we are itching closer and closer to the Australian Open. And just like London buses, we've got another helping of passing shot meets along the way whilst the tennis is in intermission. Yes, uh, we do. We're joined this evening by a fantastic guest uh, all the way from New York. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the passing shot. It is a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. How are you doing this evening? Uh, it's beautiful. It's daytime for us, but of yeah, the idea. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really it's really cool to have you on on the show, and thank you for taking the time to to join us. We're really looking forward to delving into your your new book. Um, for our listeners who perhaps aren't aware of um like who you are and your background, could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about yourself? Because I understand you come from perhaps more of a music journalism yeah, background. Yeah, I'm a music right? writer. I was an editor and a journalist. I became an author. I wrote a book called American Hardcore about punk rock that we turned into a documentary that went to Sundance and played theatrically across the States and a few other countries. Um, So I come out of music. I come out of subculture. I come out of the idea that you are members of a tribe of people who like a certain thing. Um, But the um, interest in my, uh, on my subjects is, been pretty broad and that's because it goes beyond music like for instance Sundance didn't really take the film because they like the the bands with shaved heads on the film they what it was was they understood that I was talking about it a culture of rebellion that was happening happening during the Reagan era so I always think of things in a larger picture and I'm I have a tennis uh you know I did play tennis I do. I am a sports fan. Uh, I would say that sports and music are the two things that kind of drive me, in, at least conversationally. And um, I was watching uh, a New York cable for, uh, it's called the Madison Square Garden Channel, which is what it sounds like. And they had old tapes from the vault. And it was a 1978 match between the New York Apples with Billie Jean King and the Seattle Cascades. And it was Billie Jean was the guest star um, giving uh, kind of a color commentary about this footage that they had uncovered. And what I was really fascinated by the interview was, you know, we're watching tennis and Billie Jean sitting there talking about Elton John, who 
was a fan of her team, which was called the Philadelphia Freedoms. So that's kind of like the genesis of the song Philadelphia Freedom. Uh, and she's talking about Vetus Gerolitis hanging out at Studio 54. And she's talking about uh, the, her fight for gender equality, that the league was actually the subtext of a sports league was a fight for gender equality. And, you know, I never heard, you know, that there were some big concepts going on there, but she never talked about tennis. She didn't like talk a word about tennis. And I just found that fascinating. And I went on this search and, you know, the, obviously you start with the internet and I found very little considering that this was kind of a big deal, at least in the States. And um, if you see my, so that, again, like American hardcore, that it had a deeper story. Um, that's what I found with World Team Tennis. The idea that you would not just start a business, but you would actually, it's not even an alternative sports league. She created a new sport. She like redefined the sport. They, they um, you know, the idea of a team for an individual sport, the idea of dirtying up a very elitist sport to me read like, I don't know if you've ever seen the skateboarding film Dogtown, but it's very much like that. Like she kind of in the seventies came with all these kind of radical concepts and applied it to sports. And, you know, that had never really happened before. You know, the, the final score of a, a game in world team tennis, you know, you won six to four or you won six to one. Um, I mean, the score, I'm sorry. So the scores were not 15. Lo- it was never, there was no love. There was no, you know, it was just five points was the score. And, um, you know, it was really everything about it was you were allowed to make noise. They encouraged drinking. It's basically the idea of like the blue collar hooligan uh, turning them on to, you know, try to reeducate them through through sports. And I was really fascinated by this concept. And uh, that's why we the subtitle of this book is Pro Sports, Pop Culture, Progressive Politics, because this really was the genesis of what we now consider progressive politics. It's really fascinating because it's you kind of talk about that sort of punk attitude and you know you really kind of get a sense that you know when world team tennis started it did have a an attitude about it we'll kind of get on to you know the sort of image that kind of tennis I guess had up until then but if you can kind of just uh, talk to us about a bit more about kind of world team tennis uh, at that sort of you know formative stage in the 1970s I mean I wasn't around in 1970, so I have no idea. Yeah, I barely on. was, but uh, <laughs> I get it. Um, the uh, it all goes back to the uh, Battle of the Sexes, her match with uh, Bobby Riggs. <clears throat> that was 1973. This league night started in 1974. She announced the league during the build-up to that match. So this was the manifestation of what she was talking about when she took on Bobby Riggs. Um, you know, it's the sex and drugs and rock and roll seventies, right? You know, like kind of what you've heard about. And uh, there's all these new ideas. It's still, you know, decades don't really, decades blur into each other. I'm not a big believer that the sixties are way different than the seventies, different than the eighties. Cause 
you know, they certainly don't start at the year 1970. You could say that the, like in America, they, you would say that the sixties was um, like, you know, the death of JFK and death of Martin Luther King in the Vietnam war. Right. And that's 1973 or 1974 where that ends. So it's never like a perfect setting, but this was definitely the start of the seventies. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, there was a lot of manifestation of ideas, utopian ideas. Um, there was also this big thing in America about alternative sports leagues. <laughs> if you've ever seen the movie Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell, um, it's a uh, story about a basketball league uh, that was uh, actually, it was based on a real thing. That, so the slam dunk and the three-point shot in basketball comes out of a league called the ABA. They had the red, white, and blue basketball. Um, and that's kind of uh, – and they, those were the players with the big afros and the crazy shots and Dr. J. You know, I don't know how much you know all this stuff. But, um, you know, there was also uh, leagues for hockey and uh, soccer and American football all going on at the same time with this idea that people wanted an alternative choice – in their sports viewing, which of course they did not. <laughs> um, but uh, so you get into this kind of like, um, you know, fantastic uh, rise and fall of all these sports leagues where, uh, and this is what world team tennis fits into, which is kind of as of that time. There's an idea that there should be a new sport. Um, Billy Jean is really focused on gender equality. The key the key game, the, the key, uh, I'm sorry, like the star attraction of every world team tennis match was mixed doubles. And that was a political statement. You know what I'm saying? That was beyond tennis. And, um, you know, and it also, also fit into pop culture. So you had Elton John was a part owner of the Philadelphia Freedoms for a while. And, you know, the disgraced Bill Cosby was part of all this. And, uh, um, Johnny Carson, the American talk show host, and uh, Bobby Riggs would show up. So it was kind of like a circus. And uh, Renee Richards played in the last year of the league. In fact, in the last year of the league, an American basketball player by the name of John Lucas, who's still a coach for the Houston Rockets in the NBA, uh, he was the number two American, even though he was the number one pick in the basketball draft and played for um, – was playing professionally in Houston, he um, took his time off to play in the offseason for World Team Tennis because he was the number two ranked African-American player after Arthur Ashe. So, and he kind of learned, and in the last year of the league, the number one mixed doubles team was John Lucas and Renee Richards. Now, that, I mean, talk about being ahead of your time. I mean, that's 40 years ahead of the curve. You know, Billy Jean was real. One thing that I always tell uh, you know, people have been asking me a lot about Billy Jean. And I have to say, I come away from this project with more respect for her. You know, I had a lot of respect for her to begin with, but I mean, the idea that she was putting it all on the line, she could have easily coasted, you know, mailed it in, just been a easy, star of the the tennis world but she had a bigger idea she is she is muhammad ali with a tennis racket 
I mean, she's really, it's impressive what she's done. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of what she did. I'm a big fan what she set out to do here. And ironically, this is like probably her only real abject failure. Yeah, we'll get on to the the failure of of World Team Tennis in its kind of formative years in a bit. But I I love um, how in your book, Stephen, you know, there's there are a lot of you know really unique kind of facts and um, statistics and things that I mean, some of our listeners probably were around in the seventies and would remember World Team Tennis, but there's probably so much that they perhaps didn't realise. I mean, I didn't have a, um, any clue that you know Elton John had been kind of involved for for example so it was, it was really fascinating reading through um I really liked um the way you as well you know wrote about how it was kind of the very first kind of sexually integrated league they were trying to position sports equality and sell that as a package um and it was almost like a social laboratory um where that kind of integration and, and the you know gender parity it kind of began um obviously at the time though um it was not received uh, perhaps as well as it would be received nowadays. You know, like you said, Billie Jean King was way ahead of her time with her her vision and her tenacity in, in getting this um, set up. Um, what would you say when it when it did start out? What were the kind of main obstacles that that World Team Tennis faced to kind of get it up? Right. Well, there was there was. Uh... <laughs> It was the alphabet soup of sanctioning bodies to start. <laughs> I feel like that still exists. <laughs> Every one of them wanted a piece of the action. You know, we will only sanction you are. We will not sanction your matches. No, we will sanction them if you pay us um, $200 per set. You know, like that kind of, there was a lot of that going on. There, uh, but on a bigger level, it was, it was seen as, uh, existential threat by the European uh, tournaments. Um, the league conceded by taking its mid-season break during Wimbledon, but the French and the Italian were completely at war with them. If you think back into 1974, um, the first leg of the Grand Slam is the Australian. And the winners of the Australian that year were Jimmy Connors and Yvonne Gulagam. Jimmy Connors played for a team in Baltimore near D.C. And um, Yvonne Gulagam played in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, kind of in the steel belt of America. And um, the sanctioning, the, the powers that be, were so irate that they refused to let her play, play, let them play the French and or the Italian. So they couldn't win. They were like effectively banned from winning the Grand Slam, which is like a travesty. That's how, but I'm just trying to say that's how hard the blowback was. Um, there's a sentence in, that I find really key in the book where Larry King her uh, Billie Jean's husband, who's kind of running the show, um, talks about this Americanization of tennis. And that's what um, the sanctioning bodies and the, and the, Nash, uh, the, the opens of the various European countries were, were irate about. They weren't going to let that happen. And, uh, and then, so, and then, so that Larry, um, 
Jerry Kramer, is that his name? Uh, do I say the right name? Um, like the guy, the people who run American tennis and international tennis. Uh, he, he was a star in the forties. I'm trying to remember his. Uh, I'm I'm spacing on his name. I'm sorry. Uh, people, I'm sure you'll get some blowback from me not remembering <laughs> his name. But the guy who, anyway. So the the people who ran tennis in America and in Europe had it out for them. So they couldn't get the national TV contracts. They didn't get, I'm not saying that they were bad. I don't say that they were blackmailed. I mean, I have no proof of that, but they, it, it hurt their business in terms of sponsors and uh, things of that sort. Cause they were another thing they were very ahead of the curve with was uh, corporate advertising that had never really been done before. And, uh, you know, you'd have uh, McDonald's on the back of the jersey of a team or something, you know. So, uh, you know, they were really kind of onto something, but they, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of support. You know, I, I, you know, Wilson was not an advertiser. It was Penn, you know, stuff like that. You know, they were um, not that that's so bad, and you know, but it's it's not quite A-list. You know what I'm saying? So, by the way, if you look at my book cover and you take the B of Bustin' Balls and you turn it upside down, that B is actually the Wilson logo. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's okay. our that's our cute little thing that we did on the cover. <laughs> oh yeah, I can see that now. I've just I'm just actually um instead of rotating my screen, I'm like turning my head upside down, and I can. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that now. Um, Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) You talk about the fact that, you know, there was obviously this, uh, you know, the the number of sort of organizations out there and, you know, some definite sort of hesitancy to a sort of new entrant. Um, You know, I think we see that, you know, nowadays as well. It's just, it just, you know, it's one of those timeless things, I feel, that kind of, you know, starting a new sports competition is very hard. And when you try and challenge a norm, um, people are inevitably hesitant to it. And I think, you know, particularly in tennis, which comes from a very sort of traditional, uh, you know, background, I think that's, you know, it's really interesting to understand sort of, you know, world team tennis almost kind of came in as this sort of rebel. Um, and, you know, a lot of the you know, the traditional establishment weren't really kind of having any any of it. Do you, do you kind of, you know, in your... This was not Colonel Wingfield's garden in 1834. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This was definitely like radical. This was like, you know, and there's so many stories in the book of people who are like, you know, proper gentlemen and ladies of tennis who are, you know, playing in like blue collar Detroit and people are like screaming at them or, you know, if they're wearing shorts instead of a dress, they're saying, you know, every homophobic remark you could imagine, you know, or like, you know, like that's what they were dealing with. You know, a lot of people couldn't handle it. Like John Alexander, the big Australian star, he just quit. There was a bunch of people who just like, just couldn't handle it. You know, it was because it was too, it really was crazy. If you, if you read uh, the story of the first game uh, ever of world team tennis, which is, which was Philadelphia against Pittsburgh, two cities in the state of Pennsylvania, like kind of natural rivals, in other words, for sports, um, that was the match with Bill, where Billie Jean King lost to Yvonne Gulagong. Although Philadelphia won because basically Ken Rosewall was the coach of, of, uh, 
Pittsburgh and he was kind of a gentleman, right? You know, it's like kind of very proper kind of guy. And uh, he shows up in Philadelphia and, and Billie Jean screaming at them. And it's basically, that was the plan. That was the plan was to psych them out. Like to argue every call, to scream, to yell. That was like, they used that to their advantage. I mean, her, I don't know if you know this, but um, Billie Jean comes from a really deep sports family. So her brother was a major, uh, he was a pitcher in American baseball for like 10 years, which is a very substantial career. You know, so she really comes from competitive, you know, she comes from competition. If you see the um, the Battle of the Sexes film, you learn that that is actually that match uh, with Billie Jean and Bobby is actually the second match. Uh, the first one being with the proper Margaret Court, who, you know, Margaret Court couldn't stand Billie Jean and vice versa, you know. They were like, you know, Margaret Court was like a good Christian woman, you know, and Billie Jean was like pretty much everything she stood against, you know, culturally or whatever, ethically in some ways. Right. So but when she got out on the court, with, uh, no pun intended, got out and played with uh, Bobby Riggs, Margaret Court got psyched out. She she like mentally checked out because Bobby Riggs was so rough on her. You know, she couldn't really handle it. So, you know, one thing I really like about uh, the World Team Tennis story, too, it has like, you know, Margaret Court's in the league. Um, Virginia Wade's in the league, who I really come across, come away with like a lot of respect for. I mean, watching her play, I mean, she she wasn't Serena, but she hit the ball really hard. And uh, she was tough and she always beat Billie Jean. And they did not like each other. And for a while, they were World Team Tennis teammates. And they actually won the championship together. But they were like, that. The, apparently that was not very good at first. Like, they like they did not like each other. You know, so. Um, but anyway, so you could act out these rivalries in this league, right? You know, so it was like you would bring in people who were, you know, you would encourage, like, anything that gave it a little more edge. And that is just not the tennis way, at least not the tennis way of the 1970s. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you, know, you talk about rivalries and I think rivalries is something that, you know, tennis fans can instantly sort of get and identify with just talking about sort of the you know the the innovations of of world team tennis you know we talked about its its biggest innovation being that sort of gender equality i think it was the first sports league ever or uh, you know to have um, you know men and women in an you know an equal sort of stature but it also had other things as well you know the the scoring system the you know even the color down to the color the color of the tennis court i mean you know, kind of reading your book i think it's interesting talking about that you know it was going after a different audience but at the same time it didn't go after the almost kind of the existing fans and that almost that sort of low hanging fruit it kind of forgot about them do you think you know we talk about world team tennis being you know, ahead of its time, do you think it perhaps was almost too innovative in the sense that it alienated its, you know, its core fan base? The answer is, of course, yes. Yeah, they were, they totally were. There's, there's lots of funny stories of uh, 
people of tennis society showing up at the first couple matches and just being horrified and not showing up after halftime, not returning after halftime or complaining to the team. Um, there was very, what, another interesting point in the book to me is that in 1978, right at the very end, they hired a big marketing firm to figure out who their audience was. And to cut a long story short, it was just basically it was a regular tennis audience. There was no difference. It was just no matter what bells and whistles they put on it, at the end of the day, people just wanted to see Billie Jean against Chris Everett or, or some variation of, of those kind of games. They, they thought that because it was not a tournament, that you would be sure of the person you would see that you paid for. And they thought that would be of interest. Like, in other words, you know, if there's a few upsets and you have tickets for the finals, you may not see what, what you thought you paid for. Right. So, you know what you would get when you went to see the Philadelphia Freedoms. You know, you knew you were going to get Billy Jean and, you know, a, a cast of five others, you know, uh, or, you know, if, if you knew who they were, you know, she had Buster Mottram, Buster Mottram is a uh, partner, you know, and he apparently blew the blew the game in the finals. And, uh, you know, he gets a whatever, but it's like, um, there's, um, you know, that when you went to, to Phoenix, you would get Chris Everett every week. You know, you knew that if you showed up in Boston, you would get Martina, you knew, you know what I'm saying? You know, if you showed up in Houston, you would get John Newcomb. If you knew, you knew if you showed up for the LA strings, you'd get Illy Nastasi. So that was, that was the whole, at the end of the day, that's all the league had. They didn't really have anything more than that. It was the the concept did not work. The, con, the concept did not fly, and you know they've reinvented it a few times over the years. And uh, I have to give them a lot of credit. There was <clears throat> there's been two different groups that have owned them in the past five years. So the people I spoke to five five plus years ago, I'm like two ownerships behind <laughs> of the league. Because I was just reaching out to people, I'm realizing not only is the people that I spoke to about five years ago when I started on this project not there, but they've sold it twice since. So anyway, but they did. I don't know if you know, but they they did it this year from a uh, from a tennis resort in West Virginia, and they did finish the season. So they got known in America as the first sports league to actually finish. A complete a season in the COVID era. Um, but um, the, basically the deal is it's court that it's not a real league. I mean, it's not, it's not a, um, it, it's an artificial construct. It's not a real sport because it's basically, if you work at for Chase Bank or Bloomberg, you get free tickets and there's like 200 people there. And and they do it at a resort and there's lots of corporate signage and that's the sport and they follow the same rules, but they don't allow any of the same behavior. So I don't know why you'd even want to go. Um, I'm not dismissing the talent on the court. I'm just saying like, you got to give people some, some alternative to go into a tournament. 
yeah, if you're going to position it alongside the regular tour, it's got it's got right. to offer something different, like it did back in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and this had that total like over the top seventies style. I mean, I don't know if I really made the point when I first saw this video with Billy Jean on it. I was just floored by how it looked. I mean, it was like you couldn't hire hot someone. I mean, the people who made um, uh, uh, the Battle of the Sexes film didn't capture this because it was so it was so much more over the top than they thought they were even doing and with the with the art and art with the hair and makeup and all that and the clothes. You know, the girls are wearing such short dresses. The guy, you know, the guys are like, you know, pants are just pulled up real. I mean, you can imagine what Vetus Gerolitis was doing. You know, Vetus Gerolitis, you know, there's one story in the film where he like grabs the microphone from the the old uh, arena announcer and says, party at my apartment afterwards at my hotel room. Come by, you know, and invites 5,000 people to his party. You know, so it was really like that kind of lifestyle. So um, there were affairs, there were marriages, there were breakups, there were divorces, there were children. I mean, it was like every combination came because of this. um, They had the best word, intersectional. That's the word they used, an intersectional league, which I think is such a great word. I mean, I think it's used more. I think it's used a little bit more now. But, you know, I, that's the first use of a term like that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was a, f- a forerunner in, in many ways. And um, I, I think I was I liked the fact that in your book, you've got quite a lot of quotes from, you know, top players and such like. And I quite liked how Rod Laver described it, saying the tournaments are the meat and potatoes of tennis and, and world team tennis is, is just a side order. I thought that sort of <laughs> um, summed up quite, quite well. And I in the book, you talk about kind of the commercial failure of it and the fact that they just couldn't get enough like bums on seats you know there just wasn't enough fans for the tour um for the tour for the for the uh, franchises and all the different teams to break even and i guess ultimately that's why it ended um in initially in in 78 so they had what five initial seasons before it kind of yeah. died, died you know, it there. Start, when it started well i'm sorry go I, go ahead with the question i'm sorry oh no i was just um kind of going to say i mean it, you know commercially it was it was a failure but do you think, I mean, perhaps nowadays, if someone was to try something that radical now, w- would it work? You know, seeing that society was so much, you know, more progressive now, we, you would think that we would be more receptive to something like this. The answer is yes, it certainly would be. People wouldn't be, um, uh, people would take a lot of this stuff for granted, like gender equality. Yeah. But um, a lot of people would, there'd be a lot of hurt feelings. <laughs> I don't know if people today can have the backbone that they had before to put up with what, you know, was being said at them and to them. And, mm, and, but more like a football crowd <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> I don't know if people are tough enough for <laughs> stuff. Um, I mean, it's such an incredible league. I mean, you think about, like, Renee Richards going in front of that for, like, two full seasons. You know, I mean, you can imagine. and Or, or my favorite part of the story is when – Okay, 19, America was born in 1776. Uh, we fought some other country that I can't remember. <laughs> but um, 
1776 is uh, the independence. And so 1976 was the bicentennial. And that was like this like, like orgy of nationalism, like red, white, and blue, everything. Right. And uh, the next year, 1977, Billie Jean brings the Soviet national team to play in the league. And the Soviet Union National League, this is kind of like the end of the Cold War. Um, like people thought like people from Russia had like three teeth in their head. Um, and, uh, you know, just thought they were like, we're babushkas. And, you know what I'm saying? We had, we had no idea what, you know, they were just some evil people who, we, who hated America. That's all we know. But anyway, so <laughs> under that uh, uh, descriptive uh, cultural description, Billy Jean brings into Barnstorm the League, the Soviet Union national team. And, um, you know, this is, the, this is like a freak show. Uh, people are just showing up just to see it. Like, and, she's, and she's really hammered at home. Like Birmingham, Alabama is where Martin Luther King really made his impact. And so the first match of the year was her team, the New York Sets. I'm sorry, the New York Apples at that point. New York Apples against the Soviets in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, there had never been a Russian anything in in Alabama. Yeah. And she brought, like, these guys. And and it was a cool team, you know. It was um, Alex Metrovelli and um, Olga Morozova and Natasha Kemrova. Now, Natasha Kemrova is somebody who really deserves more analysis. I don't know if you guys know about her. She was... um, she won the junior national. She won the juniors championship at where she was a finalist or something uh, around 1976. Um, she, you know, Russian player, and she was like a real free spirit. She was kind of like, kind of like Chris Everett, really. I mean, she's kind of like a Russian Chris Everett, and she's very free and very like Americanized, very fat. You know, they could tell like how quickly she became Americanized and, you know, fit in here. And this was still the the Soviet Union. So at the end of that year, basically at the end of that season, she was thrown off the national team and not allowed to travel anymore. And I don't think she really had a career after that. But she was a very highly ranked player. I mean, it's kind of a tragic story. I've I've read some interviews with her where she kind of downplays it. But I, I think that's just the Russian way. You know, I, I think that, you know, she could have been she could have been a champion. I mean, and she's a very cool story. She's very beautiful and cool and, you know, tall and, you know, had said cool things. And when she came to America, she was always the one going off to teach the kids, teach, you know, clinics for kids and promote the Soviet Union in a positive way and. I think it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, world team tennis being, you know, the sort of Americanization of, of tennis. And, you know, I think the fact that it's got, you know, world in its name, you talk about Americanizing everything, including kind of the, you know, the players you've just kind of spoken about. Again, it, it, did that sort of lead, do you think, to its downfall? And it was almost kind of, yes, I, I you know, you're saying you're a, glo- you know, this is a global presentation but you know when you americanize something it's only going to appeal to the united states and do you do you think kind of world teams tennis suffered from 
having a you know having a truly truly global appeal i mean there's two parts to that there's the part that um uh it didn't work because you were basically saying to people oh here's a player from australia here's a player from netherlands here's a player from california um and here's a player from romania and you're gonna play for los angeles and everyone's gonna go rah rah for you like you're the home team yeah you know that that was ridiculous i thought you know, there was really no connection to anything. Um, but um, they did. They did see the the Soviets as a stepping, as a step to global uh, involvement. Uh, they uh, saw if they could succeed. This started before they joined the league. This was seventy seven. They joined the league. Uh, they kind of. Tested the water in 1976. They played uh, under WTT rules. They played a, a friendly tournament uh, competition. Total points, I think, is how they figured it out. Uh, with three matches in Moscow and three ma- matches in the U.S. And the three matches in Moscow played in Lenin Stadium, which is like 15,000, and sold out in minutes. And in America, they would play in 20,000-seat auditoriums and draw about 3,000 people. And um, But they decided that that was uh, good enough. They, In other words, so they saw the interest. They, they recognized the roots of the growing Soviet tennis program, and they it fit the political vision of what Billy wanted to do, both to ruffle feathers and to also – bring a human face to a lot of the um, progressive views that she was espousing. Right. So it's, there's like all these different angles going on. So um, there's one point where in 1978, they say uh, we're going to have a European division with teams in, uh, they were all Eastern Europeans based in headquarters, based in Moscow and uh, you know, I don't remember the cities, but like, you know, Poland and, you know, places like that. Um, But so in other words, you know, the players weren't fully American. The concept wasn't very, it was kind of a, the the concept was American. You know, that was like pop culture answer, American pop culture answer to sports, right? So, um, so that was the American part. Everything else, none, none of the other part was particularly American. So, um, you're right about what you're saying about like they put the world word world there and they did aspire globally, but it, the concepts were very American. Yeah. And, but you know, Americanism sells too. So I don't, um, <clears throat> I think that was all kind of in the thinking, but what I find really interesting about the league too, is that these were, this was fly by night ownership, right? These were not like, um, you know, oil magnates did not, or, you know, or bankers did not own these teams. They were kind of like guys who invested in things, guys who had a business and invested in things, right? <laughs> so they they don't really come out of tennis. They don't come out of sports. So how are they going to choose a tennis team? You know, how are they going to negotiate a lease? How are they, you know? So the whole thing was just kind of comical on that level. 
it's fascinating kind of talking about that sort of format because it's not really one we see I think a lot in tennis that franchise format that we you know we see in other sports you know we've seen you know you know the closest I can think of that you know today we've seen is that the Indian Premier Tennis League which was around for you know a couple of seasons and kind of uh, you know faded off into I don't even know that I you know what I've never even heard of that (laughs) exactly I don't think a lot of people do (laughs) Wow. So here's a good Indian piece for our Indian uh, descendants uh, listening was that all three Armitage brothers played in the league at one time. Oh, wow. Vijay, of course, being the biggest, but Anand and um, Vijay and Ashok Armitage. So those were the three brothers and they all played in the league at the same time, which I found pretty fascinating. Between 75 and 78, two of those seasons, all three were in it. It's interesting because, as I was saying, because kind of going back to that franchise sort of setup, and you had, you know, you had people sort of, this was their first sort of big, you know, franchise thing that would go on to, you know, I think, uh, you know, a guy became, you know, New England Patriots, an NFL right. team yeah, yeah. owner, um, Chicago Bulls as well, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was interesting re- reading about the stories between, you know, between these sorts of, uh, you know, people in charge and it was real, um, you know, like, you know, player poaching, really sort of underhand dirty tactics, really kind of going on almost in the, in the background. And, you know, we obviously think tennis, tennis is a sort of gentlemanly, gentlemanly sport. I mean, maybe not so much, you know, kind of nowadays in terms of, you know, you've, you, you kind of see that bite, I think a bit more, but, you know, certainly back then, it felt like, you know, with this sort of franchise setup, it, it kind of led to sort of, you know, this sort of wild west of, of the tennis world where you could kind of go out and do all you can for the, you know, the benefit of your team. Right. Absolutely. Now, now, but at a more, on a tennis level, what was interesting was that, and you heard um, Chris Everett talks about it a couple of times in the book and a few other people talk about it, is that because they were taken out of their usual grind of, tennis player with coach, blah, blah, blah. And actually like having to compete with people in practice and, and uh, games and learning from these people. They said their games all improved tremendously. Like they all got so much better. I mean, um, Chris Everett talks about playing with Tony Roach. You know, Tony Roach was, you know, not a superstar, but he was, you know, he was a good player. And, um, but she, like, she's, she got so her she I mean she was number one, but she her real like rocket ascent of like in the late seventies really times with that uh, coincides with that. So um, I think there's a lot of that. Now don't forget, I told you that the league would take its break during Wimbledon, and there are two at least two of the seasons where every major was won by somebody in world team tennis. Like the men's champion, the women's champion, the women's doubles champion, the men's doubles champion. Like maybe of the was that six? Are there six of them? Whatever, I don't know how you count it, but men, uh, mixed men's, women. I guess there's five, right? Yeah, five, five, ta- five um, different competitions at, yeah, at five a major. Competitions, yeah, right? yeah, and I think four of the five were won by World Team Tennis people. Like at least two, at least two of those years. From a player perspective, then, you know, there was a, an appeal to playing world team tennis, you know, not just um, a more stable income, but, you know, a guaranteed a number of, of days playing as well. You know, you, you turn up at a tournament, you don't know if you're going to get 
you know, one match or six. Um, and so, and, and I guess with the type of crowds that they were getting, a sort of tougher environment perhaps then, you know, would, would also help them on the rest of the, the circuit when they did go and play, you know, women. Yeah, well, the financial thing is interesting because Billie Jean would get furious at the players because she felt like they, they, a lot of them were just mailing it in. Like, in other words, we're like, I'm getting paid. I don't need to go out and promote this thing. I don't need to try too hard. I'm going to get my money and then I'm going to go back on the tour. Mm. And she hated that. You know, she almost beat up Billy Nastasi over it. You know, she's, you know, and she probably could have beaten him up, I'm sure. You know, but um, that that was the big problem within the league. If you talk to anybody who owned a team, they found that maddening. Mm. You know, I'm sure for any EPL team, you could get the star to go out and, you know, do an ad for the team or show up at some event or, you know what I'm saying? These, they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't even bother. They just like laugh at you. They'd laugh at them, you know? So that, that was a problem. That was a real problem. And that's where I side with ownership on that one. I side, I side with Billy on that. You know, it's like you're building, you're building something new. I mean, there, I'm, I'm not saying everybody did that. I mean, there was a lot of fiery spirits in that league who, who carried the same torch, like Rosie Casals, right? I mean, or uh, to a lesser degree, Pam Austin. But I mean, they were, they were hardcore feminists, right? They were like, wanted to make this happen. This league, of course, is kind of a spinoff of uh, the original eight and the, and the Virginia Slims tournament. Um, I think seven of the original eight uh, played in the league. Um, uh, For women, it was a really big deal because they were getting paid. They were getting insurance. You know, they had a union. I mean, this is like really early stuff to even be thinking about this. But, you know, I mean, Billie Jean insisted her league have a union, right? I mean, what owner insists that they have a union? You know, that's there's nothing good to come from an owner by pushing a union in terms of their benefit. It's only it's not, yeah. not to the owner's benefit to have a union around. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th- there was a lot of, you know, uh, you know, there were people who bought into it, but it was just few and far between, you know, so... Um, it was just, again, just too far ahead of its time. The concept, the, I, the politics just like, it just kind of dripped in there. I would say it's kind of like one of those things where it just like trickled down people's backs or so. I don't know what the right term for it is, but it just kind of, kind of just eventually made its way into culture. You know, what she was preaching would just eventually kind of like, made its way into culture. The original, um, oh, and the other part of this was, I talked about the women. The reason I bring that up is because a lot of the top men did not join the league. And while I can name you, you know, chapter and verse of all the players who did a season in the league, essentially they didn't need the league because they were the ones making the money. Right? The men were making the money. They didn't need it. But the top women all needed it and wanted it. You know, um, I think I don't take anything away from her because she grew up with nothing. But um, Martina Navratilova, you know, came here and all of a sudden saw dollars. And, you know, that was, you know, that drove that drove her competitively. Some people, you know, you find in pro sports, 
a big salary either propels you or it you just mail it in. You say you already got my I already got my money. I don't have to do anything. You know, there's there's two types of people. Uh, the women were the women were kind of fierce about it though. You know, the women wanted this to happen. They tried to make it happen. Um, you know, but it was like kind of a joke, you know, Bjorn Borg, you know, comes from, you know, he's like a god, right? A beautiful, like Swedish, you know, god of a man. And he comes and plays for Cleveland, which is probably the armpit of America, you know, and I, you know, what could you think of his his one year in world team tennis for the Cleveland Nets? I mean, that must have been horrifying to him. You know, I, I can't even imagine, you know, I mean, he, he went home. Oh, and he, here's the other part. Bjorn Borg, John Newcomb, because they played so much in this league, they all got injuries that kind of trace that kind of all. If you follow when they got hurt in world team tennis, you could see the downfall of their careers. I mean, certainly Bjorn Borg kept it going into the early 80s, but he was never the same after his injury in world team tennis. So it's really, you know, there's just so many things, you know, also, you know, tennis is a game of intense, uh, intense concentration. And these people are basically living out of suitcases. You know, I mean, they're, I mean, I know you're living out of a suitcase when you're on tour. I get that part. But I mean, these people are going to four different cities in a, in a, in a week. It's funny because, you know, again, there are some very much some, some parallels, I think, with kind of the, you know with tennis of today you know players are you know more um you know picking and choosing you know the the tournaments they play in their calendar and you know it, it sounds like you know with world team tennis sort of back in in the 70s you know the the women were kind of looking at looking at it as like you know this is sport with a purpose and you know are really kind of interested in and needed to to, to play it um, you know whether that was for for money or not, um, and whereas for the men, you know, it, yeah, it felt maybe a bit more of a you know a, you know a, a side attraction, you know, just kind of talking about you know the the teams because I think there are a lot of kind of great stories there, and and you know rightly you know positively or negatively, I think you know the Americanization of tennis, as you said, I think it's led to some sort of great names and great sort of branding and designing, kind of looking at the. You know, looking at the artwork and all the the, the team names, and it, it's, it's really kind of fascinating that each kind of franchise, you know, has their own identity and then can have their own kind of story. Um, you know, your book kind of goes in to kind of detail on each of the, you know, each of the teams. I mean, it just kind of, you know, at a glance, you know, what are some of your kind of favorite kind of stories from, you know, uh, from from kind of researching all the different all the different teams and, uh, you know, their their setups. So all the teams uh, re- had names that represented uh, their city, their town, uh, something that represented it culturally as well. So, for instance, the seaside, um, the sea, uh, the uh, old seafaring city of Boston was the Boston Lobsters, right? <laughs> uh, you know, so um, really intimidating name. Parts, of, aspects of the game of tennis, the Chicago Aces the Cleveland Nets, the L.A. Strings, right? So, so there's that side. Um, or, or something in the area. There was the, most, the weirdest name I thought was um, in the Bay Area of San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, they have the Golden Gate Bridge. So it was, the team was called the Golden Gators. 
And uh, I don't see how that was an attraction at all. You know, it wasn't like the San Francisco Golden Gators. It was the Golden Gators. Now, my favorite story about that was um, the Golden Gators had a player for two seasons, uh, American top 100 player by the name of Jeff Boroviak. Jeff Boroviak uh, uh, was a good player. Uh, I, the, 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 the press release from the team was when he was let go was that he did not fit in well emotionally with world team tennis. So <laughs> there was some mental thing going on there. I don't know exactly uh, what it was, but Jeff Boroviak's best friend on the tour was Danish star Torben Ulrich. And uh, Torben uh, and his son used to always go to Golden Gators matches. And Jeff lent Torben's son the money to record his first demo of his new band. And Lars, of course, is Lars Ulrich of Metallica. So, you know, that's wow. a pretty amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've, I've been in touch with Lars, you know, and he's kind of spooked by this whole thing because he, because it is a big part of his past. He was like, he describes, he, what he said to me was that when he lived in Denmark, he was one of the best players of the country. And when he moved to California, he wasn't even the best player on his block. You know? So I like that story. But, you know, so many incredible names. There was a team in Hawaii. Um, Hawaii was very cool then. There's a a show that's since been rebooted called Hawaii Five-O about just how cool, you know, there was always uh, tiki tiki lounges and you know what I'm talking about. There was like this Polynesian post-war cool that that, um, Hawaii kind of fit in with. And that's when it became one of the states of America. And it's, you know, this whole thing. So they they tried a team in Honolulu, which, of course, commuting was a nightmare because, I mean, Honolulu is like four or five hours from Los Angeles, let alone, you know, which is another four or five hours to New York. So, you know, there's, you know, I was talking about these tennis players, uh, you know, living out of a suitcase. I'm not just saying that they spent, you know, uh, six days in Melbourne. I'm saying that they uh, were in Toronto. They went to Denver. They went to Miami. They went to Houston, Texas, and then they went to LA and then they went to uh, Hawaii. And then two days later, they were back home. I mean, can you imagine playing tennis under that, under those circumstances, maybe 48 hours in each town? Mm. It's like doing a, a whole concert tour, isn't it? If, as if you were like a musician just on the road constantly. Right, yeah. It was very much like that. You know, it's like I kind of saw this I saw this whole story of busted balls, this whole world team tennis story at like rock and roll. I mean, that's mm. what I come out of. Yeah. I saw this whole thing as rock and roll. I thought Billy's approach to it was that was rock and roll. I thought like the way everybody behaved was rock and roll. I thought the 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 the, you know, the time and place was rock and roll, right? You know, it's the 70s, right? But, um, you know, there was a some podcast that my uh, publisher sent me of – I wasn't on it. It was just somebody talking about the book. And they, they were like, they're like, wow, this really reads like a rock book. You could tell this guy was a rock writer. 
know, and I'm like, with the little factoids and all those kind of things. I'm like, yeah. Well, I'm sure we've got some listeners who are really into rock, so this will be right up their street, um, I'm sure. I mean, some people are horrified by my point of view. I mean, I have to, I have to say, I mean, so, but, I've, but I think I'm onto something. I think I'm, I think I'm correct. Yeah, and tennis is undergoing a if, – if, yeah, I mean, I, you guys know the culture far better than I do. But what I learned when I um, finished the book, I was kind of like, you know, in my own little world while I was writing it. But um, when I came out and I decided, like, well, where am I going to promote this thing? You know, I started listening to all the podcasts and stuff. and uh, But I also, you know, underneath it all, I, I kind of saw, like, this whole new – culture had arisen around it, kind of like a, a edgier kind of thing than that, you know, that elitist, you know, it's still, you know, because of the money that is in, in, in invested and involved in tennis, it's still of a moneyed class and it will always be that way, but it's been dirtied up a little bit. And that's why, you know, I discovered racket magazine and I discovered like these got, you know, black, uh, you know, there's this um, African-American podcast and, you know, there's this kind of idea of like the outsider of tennis. I brought up um, the Dogtown film before about skateboarding and skateboarding kind of started like a very conservative sport, almost like how surfing was kind of wild, but also also very conservative. Um, And so, and then there's the story of like all the kids doing jumps and flips with their skateboards and they're all getting in trouble and they all have crazy colored hair and listening to radical music. And, you know, so I kind of saw the, the transformation of, um, uh, world team tennis a little bit like that, but I also see like, um, a manifestation of like just tennis being a little cooler, you know, and like a little artier, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of see it as like, um, uh, you know, not really part of the, you know, there's a, there's a hungry tennis world that's not really part of the establishment of tennis. And I, I find that like really exciting. I find that, um, you know, like, you know, I look at like racket to me reads like a, like a journalistic uh, uh, review. You know, they used to call them a review, like an old magazine, like our parents used to read you know, like one of those completest magazines of that look really nice and uh, you puts you into a culture. So, um, and I also see like, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I, I really felt it was very WTT like where I saw, I, I can't remember what tournament it was, but it was an indoor tournament and they, all the players just ran down onto the court and ran around and everyone's screaming and yelling I'm like, yeah, this is like what WTT was trying to do. Mm. But that never would have existed. They never would have allowed that before. You know, there wouldn't have even, you know, it'd be like, you know, uh, they would be, excuse me, everybody be quiet, right? That's what you would get in the, in the, in the tennis world that they were part of. Mm. Have you like, um, have you ever been to Wimbledon to uh, to no, watch I've tennis there? I don't. I, mean, I, I don't I've think you should. Few, I've been to the US <laughs> Open. Because, yeah, you know, I have the ugly American side, but it's um, the uh, you know the whole idea. Two sides of a coin there. Yeah, it's fascinating <laughs> to me. I like. I you know I grew up. I, I like. I I still don't really understand uh, 
you know, I don't really, uh, I've never played lawn tennis in my life. I mean, I don't, I've never seen, you know, so I don't, I don't know even know where I would play lawn tennis near me. Yeah. I mean, it, it is quite a niche thing nowadays, um, yeah. to be honest, but I mean, the current tennis scene, is there any, anyone that you think is like rock and roll enough? Or do you think there well, is tennis? What's his, what's his last name? <laughs> I'm basing on his last name, tennis. Who's in the news right now? Um, Oh, tennis Sangren. Tennis Sangren. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've related to him for a while because I like his game. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, I'm kind of like of a similar size and place that, you know, I'm right-handed with a two-handed backhand shot. So I recognize all that stuff. But, um, you know, you know, he's, he's exciting to me. You know, I don't, you know, I, I like um, Naomi Osaka. I mean, for obvious reasons, her game is beautiful, you know, but, um, you know, I don't really see too much except for the finals. A lot of times these days, I just don't have the, the time, but, um, I, uh, but I, I like, I feel like there's more of an edge right now. I feel like that there's kind of a, you know, the tennis players speak their mind now. I mean, it may not seem like anything, seem like a big, a big revelatory statement there, but that's a huge thing. Yeah. I think being a tennis player was you did not speak your mind. Yeah. I definitely think that edge is sort of, you know, returning. And I think you're right in terms of, you know, you're having players like, you know, Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, um, tennis has, you know, tennis is a sort of becoming more, a a part of the fabric of culture. And I'm kind of interested to see that kind of evolve, just kind of wrapping up on, on world team tennis, you know, we, you know, we, we know it exists today. Um, You know, it feels quite different. I think, you know, it's been through, as you said, kind of a quite few iterations since, you know, the 1970s. Do you think, you know, if we took, you know, the, you know, the uncut sort of version of it back in, in 1974 and tried to kind of redo that today, do you think, you know, it could, do you think it could work now? Or, you know, do you think it was just, you know, a proof of concept at a time and something that we could learn from and that's what we should leave it at? Yeah, I think the latter is really what it is. I mean, um, it's never a great idea to try to recreate something that that happened a long time ago, especially something that failed a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, I think... Um, <laughs> I think that it's um, uh, I think it's the lessons of world team tennis, and I think you've elucidated them a lot uh, very well here, you know, but it was um, the the kind of freeing up of the tennis world, if we're gonna just kind of put it that into a few words, you know, just loosened it just loosened everything up. you know, it just really just you know it was a very it's a, it was a you know, there's uptight aspects to the sport. I get it, but it's not like it was. It's a lot cooler. You know, I mean, that had been happening through the '90s with Wendell and Roddick, and you know, all those kind of guys. But uh, you know, and you know, of course, one guy who was too young for World Team Tennis, but he played because he, he started his professional career one year after the league started, but was hugely influenced by the league. And it's very obvious after our conversation was, uh, was John McEnroe. Hmm. Yeah. He I would mean, have been right like, there. He should be in world team tennis. Yeah, no. for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, but he, and he is for sure went to the matches and, 
Now, there's also an interesting, I don't know if you know this one, that he's from a area of New York, which is uh, like a kind of suburban far reaches of New York City. And um, he uh, and Mary Carrillo come out of the same tennis scene. And they were like the same, they were, you know, Mary Carrillo in 1978 played for the New York sets with Billie Jean King, tore up her knee and never played again. And that's how she became an announcer. But she like, so Mary Carrillo and, and uh, John McEnroe were the top like 16 and under players at this tennis uh, um, at this one, one spot in, you know, which is technically New York city. So you can imagine how good they were, you know, it's kind of scary, you know, that, Oh, and Vetus Gerolaitis is part of that too. Right. So there's these guys who are kind of like, um, like New York, like that's kind of like a New York, you know, tennis thing, which is kind of weird because you wouldn't think New York would be like a, a, a home to tennis, but um, you know, that that's some pretty strong roots right there. I mean, especially, you know, McEnroe and, and Vitas, it's pretty heavy. So I think it's, um, it's, it's the lessons that were learned. Um, I think, you know, when I tell the story of this, in this book, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm, other than telling you something about the player, I'm not really talking that much tennis. I mean, I'm talking about what happened that evening and events, you know, I'll, I'll talk about who won the match based on something interesting that happened that night. But um, I'm trying to appeal to beyond tennis fans because what Billy Jean was trying to create was beyond tennis. And I think this is true to the vision. And I think the vision is strong. And I think that's such a strong vision she had. You know, she was out to change the world through sports. I mean, that's so, it's so meaningful to me. I mean, it's really like, who would have thought of that? You know, it's like, I think she saw that she had the platform and she was going to make it work. And, you know, like I said at the outset, um, I come away from this um, project with more respect for what she did. Yeah, no, definitely. I think your book is um, a fantastic read, not just for tennis fans, but yeah, anyone who is, you know, somewhat interested in kind of the socio-political kind of context of, of the 70s or anyone who's, you know, interested in how sports fits within like a wider context. It's not just about, you know, the results on court. It, it's so much more than that. And your book really encapsulates that. And um, we're going to kind of wrap up soon. It's been fa- like fantastic speaking to you, Stephen. And um, we've got a couple of, uh, well, we've got a listener's question before we go, um, which I hope you'll be able to answer. This is from Lee um, at Tennis on Telly on Twitter. Um, and he's uh, quite a big fan of some of the the team names and the logos, which we covered a bit earlier, saying that they're really iconic. Um, if you had to pick maybe one or two, what what are your favourite team logos um, from a I guess artistic perspective? It's hard. It's hard not to like the Soviets. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, as the Soviet with the real Soviet colours, and uh, it's hard not to like a team called the Houston Easy Riders. <laughs> So the combination of back then the seventies, there was the biker movie Easy Rider. Mm. 
So it was that's Easy Riders, but the owner of the team, his name was E Z Jones. So the team was called the E Z Riders, and they had they had a uh, their logo was of like this Texas cowboy with this curly mustache with a gun in one hand and a tennis a, and a smoking tennis racket in the other. Can't do much better than that one. I mean, I like the Florida Flamingos and, 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 you're a, and pink is your favorite color because... They don't really strike fear or intimidation into, like, the, the opposition, I feel. Well, like, flamingos? Flamingos? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, colorful time and place. You know, there's in the... You know, the book's uh, uh, excerpted in the new... Um, racket magazine and they do the chapter on the denver rackets who became the phoenix rackets and it has a lot of pictures of um uh chris everett and chris Kristen kemmer or Kristen kemmer shaw i don't know if you've ever come across her name but she was um a big california pro and she was really beautiful and uh they were the considered the it girls of world team tennis you know they were like the the cool girls of of the league so um but yeah there's just so many colorful uh you know i mean in hawaii you wear a lei that around your neck oh yeah so the team was called the hawaii lays which was really funny name in the seventies too. It had that double entendre again of the sexual liberation of the time, or she's the lays, <laughs> you know. So the you know, there's like this, there's funny things going on. Um, same thing where uh, in it was a women driven league, and you know that the men, the city of Pittsburgh is sometimes called the city of three rivers because okay. the three rivers meet at this one junction, which make the city of Pittsburgh. So, you know, the joke is of the triangle, you know, cause this was a women's league. So they called their team, the triangles, you know? So there's like a lot of weird little stuff like that going on there too. Cause it's again. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, your book is um, full of wonderful facts and, you know, I mean, it's such a, you know, it, entity in itself and you know all the you know you could probably write a whole book just on the the logos and names alone and the etymology of them um Stephen one last question and this has I'm afraid nothing to do with world team tennis um but it's something that we ask every guest on our show for our passing shot meets series um and as we're a very British podcast um you can tell that by our our accents obviously um we do like our tea here on the passing shot so we just want to ask are you are you a tea drinker well, you know, do you have a, a favorite tea? A British tea is not unfamiliar to me. I mean, oh, I, I have a funny story. You'll appreciate this. Um, my high school, I was 14 or 15, high school exchange program. My dear mother wanted me to be cultured. So she got me an exchange program to high school exchange program to London. Ah. So she didn't know that public and private schools are the opposite where yeah. we live, like what you would call public school, we would call private school and vice versa. Like, so my mother thought she was sending me to some like really like lovely Eton 
prep kind of school in in London. And I was in like with the muck in a public school in Ilford. Oh, right. <laughs> and it was on. I mean, I fought yeah. every day I was there for like the first weeks, you know, as the American and all that. So I, I'm not, uh, you know, I spent time there, so I'm, I'm not totally averse to it. Now, there's certain combinations that don't ever work. There's the, like, for instance, I don't know, like, like in America, there's uh, uh, a big black food is chicken and waffles. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this before. But it just I, – I eat it and it doesn't make any sense to me. Like I don't really understand what the two have to do with each other. Like it doesn't really work. And to me, I never really understood – I guess what you would call – I think they used to call it builder's tea. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Like I never really big. understood tea with milk and sugar because to me it just tastes like tea and milk and sugar. Right. It doesn't really blend, you know. So I like my, my whiskey neat, you know – straight i like my coffee black and i and that's how i drink my tea i love pretty much anything that's not too citrusy mm-hmm. um oh i have a, another good story is that rock and roll if you for your few rock and roll fans there um there doesn't get to be much more of british rock royalty than justin hayward of the moody blues and i was interviewing him having a proper tea with him and I decide to pour his cup for him and put all the tea leaves in his, in his uh, cup. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he just looked at me like I was just the biggest loser. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a whole art form and yeah. many arguments have been known to be had. Oh, yeah. no, I've been to places <laughs> where, like in London where they're like, okay, come over here. We're going to give you a jacket. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can wear a blazer. Here's a blazer. Because you <laughs> <dressed> horribly. <laughs> Here and then we'll yeah. have your cucumber sandwich and your tea yeah oh yeah okay well, well i also have my tea black so um i yeah, totally get where you're that. coming from with regards to the milk uh but yeah thank you very much we will add you to our our tea hall of fame for our all our lovely guests <laughs> awesome thank you for having me i really like what you guys do thanks for the support um if anyone wants the book they could go onto amazon that's probably the easiest way um but uh Bustin balls you know it's uh I spent a lot of time on this, but I really, I really believe this is a really important story, and it's a, it's first and foremost a tennis story. So I'm glad to bring it. Yeah, it's a really compelling story. As I said, we, you know, we've we've both kind of delved into it, and it is a really kind of fascinating story that I don't think many people really know about. And and to kind of focusing particularly in that sort of first sort of formative era from 1974 to 1978 it it makes it really worthwhile and kind of reading through all the teams as well it's really fascinating we'll make sure to put a link in the description uh for our listeners if you want to kind of uh, have a look at it um as as um steven said it is on amazon so you can also look for it there busting balls world team tennis 74 to 78 pro sports pop culture and progressive politics um but for now um listeners i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the passing shot um if you have make sure to leave us a rating and comment on apple podcast and make sure to subscribe to the show on your podcasting platform of choice whether that's on apple spotify overcast Castbox, or stitcher or if you enjoy the show tell your friends as well we uh, we would be happy to hear it and you can find us on social media on twitter instagram and facebook at passing shot pod uh, so do get in touch with us on our social channels and you can also send us an email passing shot pod 
pod at gmail.com. Uh, remember, we do have a mailbag feature every week and we love to feature um, any listener questions and uh, comments. So do get in touch with us and we'll be happy to, to have you on board. And we will be back on Sunday with our next tour catch up as we get closer to the Australian Open, looking at all the events in Melbourne with Melbourne one and two, as well as the ATP Cup. So look out for that. But in the meantime, Stephen, thanks so much for for coming on and and talking about um, your book, Busting Balls, World Team Tennis, Pro Sports, Pop Culture and Progressive Politics. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck to you guys. Keep doing, keep fighting the good fight. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And listeners, yeah, we will be back at the weekend. So look out for us then. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.